FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Thursday, February 18th. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, I think many of you who listen to the show regularly know that I spent um, much of my uh, career as a reporter in Georgia covering national politics, traveling on the road with presidential candidates for five election cycles, um, covering Washington, Capitol Hill, the White House, when there were major stories that needed to be covered from up there. I always thought that that was the glamour beat in politics, that getting an opportunity to uh, see United States senators, presidents, and presidential candidates up close and personal was where all the real action was. But as the politics in Washington got more and more toxic, and as it became clearer and clearer that that toxicity was preventing our leaders in Congress from really being able to solve practical problems, I had kind of an epiphany. I realized that where politics really matters, where the rubber really meets the road, is in state and local politics, and really especially when it comes to politics in a a county and in a city. And, And I began to find myself more and more interested in watching how local political leaders were solving the everyday problems that they faced, that their neighbors faced. And and so I love these shows when we get an opportunity to bring together mayors from across the state of Georgia and ask them how things are going in their communities. And that's what we're going to do today. Of course, it's Thursday, which means I'm joined with the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, how are you doing? You're, Kevin, you understand this as well as I do. Your newspaper uh, spends a great deal of time covering the local issues in metro Atlanta, particularly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Good morning, Bill. And it's really uh, good to be with you again today. And I'm looking forward to this, too, because um, I actually have a bunch of questions uh, for these mayors. And I do think it's one of the best ways to find out what real people think when you talk to mayors, because they have to see the people who elected them every day and they are very accountable to them. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly the point. So we are joined today by Mayor Van Johnson, the mayor of Savannah, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, the mayor of East Point, and Mayor Rusty Paul of Sandy Springs. Thank you all so much for uh, being with us today. Uh, I got a quick question for you all. Uh, Mayor Johnson, I'll start with you. Have you been dealing with this cold snap down in Savannah? It's it's only in the it was only in the mid 30s when I got up here in Metro Atlanta today. Are you guys cold down there? No, actually, we're not. Um, we we're we're oh. we're unseasonably cool, so to speak. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Um, you know, our hearts go out to our friends in Texas and and folks that are just dealing with this unreasonable. Uh, type of cold. But I mean, here in Savannah, we're relatively blessed. We actually had a pretty decent sunny day yesterday, supposed to rain, um, you know, cool, but definitely not cold. Good. Well, I'm glad that you're uh, handling uh, the weather down there better uh, than they are, as you say. Texas, Rusty, I was thinking about 
how often Georgia has been in the middle of these weather emergencies. I mean, some of the pictures out of Texas can't help but remind us of the snow apocalypse a number of years ago. Uh, we're, we, we, we dodged a bullet on this one, Rusty, and that's good news for you mayors because when the weather gets really nasty and you have to deal with those emergencies, that's one of the hardest parts of your job. It is. I had, uh, you may recall that uh, about seven years ago, uh, I had been elected three weeks, and we had that big snowstorm. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and I, I learned some very valuable lessons in that. Well, first of all, we mobilized uh, Tuesday night, uh, and fortunately, didn't the, the, the temperature stayed a, an inch or, two, or a degree or two above uh, what was predicted, and that helped us dramatically. But there's no bigger challenge. Uh, and I learned a long time ago that the biggest the biggest gap in these emergencies is information. So when we have a big snowstorm or some e- event, I spend a lot of time on social media, Nextdoor, Facebook, all those social platforms, just letting people know what we're doing, where the streets are closed, and those sorts of things. And that makes a huge difference, just people knowing what's going on and that somebody's out there actually responding uh, at least it's the unknown that always upsets people. Yeah. Mayor Ingram, do you think that I am naive in suggesting that partisanship and local politics plays a far lesser role because you have to, as uh, Kevin Riley said, you've got, you're talking to your constituents every day. They've got potholes they want filled. They've got other problems. You can't afford to let partisanship be uh, the motivating force in what you all do as mayors. Absolutely. Good morning, Bill, and thanks for the opportunity. I, I definitely think it plays a lesser role. I don't know if I would say far lesser, but to your point, the day, the issues that we deal with are impact our residents on a daily basis, whether or not their trash gets picked up, whether or not when they turn on, flip the light switch, the lights come on, whether or not the water comes So We are really closest to the people, and we can go to the grocery store and interact with our constituents, right? So we are right here with them and they know it and we're very accessible um and i i think that is what requires us to not focus on politics profit or party and really focus on people and real solutions and so i think that is the definite um invaluable asset of being an elected official and being at the table and being able to bring that real people focused perspective to any issue that we're discussing So then let me, as long as you've got the ball, let me start with you on one of the most uh, significant issues of the day, uh, Mayor Ingram. I I was struck this morning, as I'm sure most people were, in hearing the news, which was just reported again on NPR a few minutes ago, that life expectancy in the United States in the first half of 2020 dropped by fully one year, largely driven by coronavirus, also apparently by drug overdoses, but uh, uh, and and we don't know if it's going to turn around and come back, but more significant perhaps than just the overall uh, drop is the gap between black and white Americans is now six years, the widest it's been since 1998. And I want to give you a quote. Elizabeth Arias, who is the federal researcher who produced the report that gives this information, said this about racial disparity, quote, I knew it was going to be large, but when I saw those numbers, I was like, oh, my God, we haven't seen a decline of that magnitude in decades. 
All that is a backdrop, uh, Mayor Ingram. I'll start with you and then uh, have our other mayors weigh in. Tell me about the coronavirus in your community right now and about how things are going. Well, you know, as a city with over 76 percent, and even if you include our Hispanic population, we're about 85 percent people of color. Um, So you can imagine that those disparities are definitely manifesting themselves in our city. Um, When we look at the vaccinations, to date in Fulton County and the people who have received the vaccination, there's a disparity in the data in the number of people of color who have been vaccinated. Um, There was an access issue and an equity issue, and hopefully we're moving forward in addressing that. But so we are, our residents want to know in group 1A, how can they get the vaccine? I get emails saying, I'm calling the number, I can't get through. Um, You know, Mayor, what, what should we do? Where else can we go? So we're constantly sharing with them, well, yes, that's Fulton County or, you know, Green by the Kroger Publix, now CVS Walgreens, your primary care physician. But the, the issue of people not wanting to get it because of education, like in Group 1A, they want to get it and they need it to be accessible. We're also finding that we're, there's an increased number and the number continues to increase of people who need financial assistance, rent, utilities, mortgage assistance. Um, we received some grant funding from Fulton County to provide rent and utilities assistance, but there's nothing really out there right now for mortgage assistance. We requested a CDBG grant to be able to try to provide some assistance with that. People in our city are really trying to make it day to day and need to know, and and I've assured them time and time again that we will be with them every step of the way and we will get through this together. We will use our network resources, um, relationships, and influence to make sure that we can bridge the gaps and meet their needs. Uh, so uh, I want to get, get, ha- ask you, Mayor Johnson, and then you, Mayor Paul, to weigh in, too. Give us kind of a status report on all of this. I do want to remind our listeners, of course, that in, in, in many cases, you're dealing with it's the county in which your cities reside that are, have to deal with the bigger parts of these problems. But you see how the county's response affects your own citizens. But so let's keep that in mind. Mayor Johnson, how about the corona? Where, where do you stand with the coronavirus in Savannah right now? Absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out. Um, Savannah, of course, is the county seat of Chatham County, um, where almost 18,000 confirmed cases. Um, we've lost over 330 of our neighbors, our relatives and our friends here uh, in our community. Um, we're a little alarmed that um, Georgia uh, has, has been reported among the wor- worst COVID death rates in the nation, although you, it, it appears that the trajectory across the country are, are plummeting. Um, we felt a, um, a little buoyed by the news that uh, Chatham County is vaccinating its residents at a rate that's more than one and a half times the statewide rate. Um, which means that people are getting vaccinated. But to Mayor Ingram's point, um, Savannah is a majority uh, minority community, and so the, there's, no, there's, there's very little equity uh, in terms of how um, people of brown skin and black skin are being vaccinated to the rates of, uh, of the greater population. And so um, we've been working still with our health systems, working still with our faith-based groups, um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, the, the feeling, the distrust uh, of, of public health uh, vaccines is, is well-founded uh, here in Savannah. Um, some years ago, there was this test about 
mosquitoes and vaccines. So people people are still alive to remember those things. So uh, for us, it's a it's an issue of trust. It's an issue of going out to communities. It's, it's an issue of getting the vaccines to where people are. And then finally, um, you know, we have a mask mandate here in Savannah, and we have called on weekly Governor Kemp to issue a statewide mask mandate. Um, the reality is for us, it does not make sense for Savannah to have a mass mandate in public spaces, but yet in bars and clubs and public establishments, they can decide whether they want to have a mass mandate or not. Um, it confuses people, and I, I, don't, I think we have not been able to really turn a corner the way we should have because, again, we are kind of bipolar in how we're addressing these issues uh, as it relates to the state uh, and cities. I apologize. Uh I should point out, you were one of the first mayors to establish a mask, man, a mask mandate. You did this quite a while ago. Uh, we were the first. Last year. July the first. We did it. We were the first. We yeah. did it on July the first. Um, but like you said, I mean, we're we're trying to get to that point. But the the fact is, is that you know you have to wear a mask on the public sidewalk, but then you can go into a bar or a restaurant and then you can take it off. And so what happens is it kind of defeats the purpose of the mask mandate. Everybody says from the White House to even uh, the governor's own public health department, every scientist says that masks work, and that is how we get through this. And and President Biden has said that. The way we get out of this is through mask wearing, not through vaccines. Mayor Paul, uh, if you want to, I I suspect that there are a lot of people in Sandy Springs who are wearing masks voluntarily, knowing your community as I do. But uh, give us a larger status report on coronavirus vaccines uh, as the other mayors have. Yeah, we've, uh, I mean, we're, we, I, I've been fielding the same emails that, uh, that uh, Mayor Ingram and, and, and Mayor Johnson have, have as well from my constituents. And there was a lot of confusion very early on, particularly among our seniors. Uh, but that's beginning to even out as the as the logistics of getting this vaccine. You know, it, it, this has been a huge, huge logistic challenge, and I understand the frustration. But in my view, I think that everybody's done a pretty good job, given where we started from, to get things done. Yes, where there are mistakes. But you were talking about life expectancy. One of the things that got igno- gets ignored in this is the large number of suicides. As people are isolated from their friends and neighbors, our police department uh, went through a, 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 a time where we were averaging one or two suicides a week in a city of 100,000 people. And that's, that's, you know, we may not get three or four a year, and here we were a- averaging that many uh, a week. And that has had a real impact on life expectancy as well. But we're, the trend lines for, on corona are, are much better uh, now. Uh, people are getting vaccinated. You're right. We're getting probably 99% plus compliance with masks, both in public spaces and in private spaces. So that's really helped as well. Uh, for for each of you, and I guess I'll direct it at Mayor Johnson to start. Uh, Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta made news a couple of weeks ago because uh, she said that she had asked uh, President Biden to send vaccines directly to the city, and and she felt it would be a more effective and efficient way to get people vaccinated. So um, I guess for each of you, again, starting with Mayor Johnson, would you agree with that? I mean, would you want to be in that business of of actually having it shipped directly to the city and then figuring out how to uh, maximize vaccinations? Well, I think that you said it initially at the beginning of your broadcast. Um, We're not in the, the the business of public health. 
That being said, though, cities are closer to the ground. Um, we become uh, extremely efficient at logistics and at moving and getting things around. We have assisted our health district. We've opened up our civic center. Um, where we've been able to literally test thousands and thousands of people. We don't want to necessarily be in that business, but we will do all that we have to do to make sure that vaccines get to where they need to get to. We need to make sure that um, that that we are getting equity in terms of who's receiving them, um, making sure that we're helping to move vaccines through our community uh, at a, a faster rate. So, um, again, ideally, no, but practically, if we have to get into the game to make sure that we're protecting our cities, then absolutely. Yeah, I, Mayor I, Johnson, I, before I kind of take a smaller yep. uh, uh, change, or a little different than, than Mayor Johnson. The logistical challenges of getting this man, this this vaccine out to so many locations is already a problem. It's tough enough getting it to 159 counties. You can only imagine what it would be if you had to add 500 plus cities to to do this. Secondly, we don't have. The, the refrigeration and all the other things that you need, the, the number of people you need to administer the vaccines, having them in, in, in easy access to locations is crucial, uh, but we don't have enough medical personnel to be able to, to do it at the local level. So it has to be done through the counties. They have the constitutional responsibility for public health in the state of Georgia. It just needs – the biggest challenge this whole thing is the lack of vaccine you get more vaccines in you can vaccinate more people and things will go a lot more smoothly that's the that's the one hitch in the whole process mayor ingram um i i I, I differ a little in that for me i especially during this pandemic i'm always thinking how can we get what our residents need in our city because we know that transportation is a just universal barrier, right? There are a number of things that that exacerbate the inequities within the system. And so, you know, I, I kind of agree with Mayor Bottoms around the people in our city. It's easier for them to access a location in our city than it is somewhere else. Our EMTs and our fire department are actually assisting the county with the vaccination distribution. So, we can be a site. We're actually working to collaborate and partner with even others who have received clearance to um, administer the vaccination and find a location. And we do have churches and other buildings as well as um, city-owned buildings within our city where we might be able to have the refrigeration. And the Georgia International Convention Center actually just opened up on, on yesterday. And so from the that ability at that facility to refrigerate and, and just the the size of that facility, I think that could be a really good um, center of a distribution center for South Fulton City, be able to, you know, connect with that. We're not too far from it. And then still have those, some location within our city. Again, thinking about the people that we are serving and alleviating the barriers, which transportation access, like scheduling, all of those other things. And instead of them competing with everyone in the county, we'd have to we'd be able to deal with the people within our city. You know, Kevin, as a follow-up to your question, what I have really struggled to try to wrap my own uh, head around where the real problems on distribution of vaccine uh, stands. For, For a long time, I thought, what's wrong with counties? Why aren't they better positioned to get the vaccine to the residents? Uh, why are their communications not working as well as they could? 
and, and then I thought, well, no, actually, they're creatures of the state. What's going on with state government and how the Department of Public Health is dealing with uh, the vaccine and distribution? And, and then kind of what, what Mayor Paul said, it, it does strike me that in the long run, uh, it is the availability of the vaccine more than anything else that creates uh, uh, this uh, uh, problem that we're dealing with right now. And maybe what it does is it, ta- it in some ways distracts from the fact that state and, lo- and county governments have not necessarily done as much as they can uh, to set up the systems that will get the vaccine distributed more equitably. Does, does any of what I just said make sense? So, for instance, if you don't have high-speed Internet, your chances of getting a, vaccin- a, a vaccination appointment are already limited uh, because that's one of the main ways you get it. Oh, you can get on the phone to the phone n- number uh, of a Department of Public Health in your community, but getting through to that number becomes a, a, a challenge. Um, uh, Kevin, are your reporters finding similar? Are they kind of struggling to understand this in a more comprehensive way, too? Yeah, here, here's what I would say, Bill. I would kind of, and I'm interested to see what the mayors think about this, uh, because uh, of what they see from where they are. But as we've covered this, we've discovered some really important things, right? And and the availability of the vaccine, as Mayor Paul points out, is a huge, huge thing. But one of the other things that becomes clear is the limitations of the state's public health infrastructure. In other words, it's something that hasn't been well-funded. And uh, we've even, you know, found that... Uh, data that the state is supposed to be tracking. They have t- trouble tracking. They have trouble creating reports. They have antiquated computer systems. So I think that's what's before our state and all of our political leaders, which is, um, look at, you know, uh, the future probably has viruses in it. And it's going. this is going to be something we're going to have to deal with a lot. And why not take it on as a state where we have the CDC, where we have Emory, where we have all of this uh, infrastructure and create the kind of public health system that would would make something like this work go so much better. Um, that, that's Mayor really Johnson? what we're finding. Mayor, Mayor Johnson? Johnson, yes. Why don't you weigh in on on where do you where do you draw who who's responsible? You how, well, first of all, I know the question I've been wanting to ask you. How come you're doing so much better in vaccinating in Chatham County than the rest of the state? Well, because we're the first city in Georgia, and that's just what we do. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't give, you can't give a mayor a softball question like that, Bill. He pitches it, I take it. But um, I think, again, um, you know, for what it is, we have a very good relationship with our public health system. Um, they've been our partners throughout um, this process, the Coastal Health District, the Chatham County Health Department, um, we anticipated this was coming. Um, people are calling. Um, but, you know, we get into the issues, again, of equity. If you don't have high-speed Internet, if you don't have transportation, uh, those are barriers. And then, you know, it becomes not only issues of race but also issues of class. Um, that if you are more affluent, there have been cases here where people um, have been able to have access um, because of who they are or what they have. And so that is not 
uh, a totally fair and equitable system. And so, uh, as Mary Ingram said, that's why we have to make sure that we're much more strategic and much more surgical about our approaches, making sure that we're uh, using community centers, that we're closer to people, where they can um, walk to a vaccine site rather than going across town to be able to get one. Um, and again, for seniors, when you're talking about that phase 1A+, plus, you, you know, you're talking about um, folks that may not be as Internet savvy or as Internet illiterate, I mean, illiterate as many folks. Um, many of my citizens, particularly um, our elderly um, folks, we know they'll call. They'll call, they'll call, the phone is busy, they'll call, they'll call, and they can't get through. They get frustrated. And so then they see people around them getting vaccinated, and it creates kind of a panic um, type of situation in, in which then they call the mayor's office. I can't get through. What can you do? I can't get through. Um, so, you know, I think we just have to be much more comprehensive. And I think, you know, from this we'll be better. We'll think of uh, vaccinations and public health in a different, new and innovative way that is much more equitable, that's much more far-reaching and much more inclusive. Mayor Paul, I got to get to a break, but before I do, I can I can only imagine how your phone rings off the hook with people turning to you, your residents saying, yeah. "How do I get this vaccine, Mayor Paul? What's going on here?" Well, the great thing about uh, being a mayor is that your constituents think you're omniscient and omnipotent, <laughs> uh, so uh, that you're the, you're the source of all power and all information. Uh, but but Kevin's right; we have not invested in public health infrastructure in a long time. The legislature just uh, passed in the supplemental budget $27 million to upgrade the computers. That was the problem. The system was overwhelmed. You couldn't get through online. We didn't have enough people answering the phone. And, and there has been no significant investment in the infrastructure to handle this. You know, it's getting better but it's still a long way, and we've got to – when this is all over and we, we start looking at the battle casualties, this is one area we have to take a very long, hard look at because Kevin's right. This is not going to be the last one. All right. Uh, there's a lot more uh, on the plates of mayors across the state of Georgia beyond the coronavirus, and we will turn to some of those other issues. But we got to get to our first break of the show. Let's do that, and we'll be back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Just a quick program note before we uh, continue. Tomorrow, we are going to revisit what I think Amelia Brock and I both agree is one of the most provocative shows we did in the last year. It's a conversation with essayist Gerald Walker, whose book, How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, was nominated last year for a National Book Award for nonfiction. The title of the book comes from a famous Frederick Douglass quote, who said, you have seen how a man was made a slave, you shall see how a slave was made a man. And in the book, uh, Walker talks about, in really unexpected ways, his experiences of moving through his own black community, the white community. Um, some of his essays are funny. 
Others are searing in their acknowledgement of racist stereotypes. And what's really interesting to people like me is that some of them puncture with those of us who are white think we may understand about how black people experience bigotry. So, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation, and uh, I hope you'll uh, join us uh, for that. Okay, back to today. Uh, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Mayor Rusty Paul, Mayor Van Johnson, all with us, as is Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC. Kevin, why don't I give you a chance to... uh, Uh, pose the first question of this segment. Well, you know, I'm interested in in something that uh, we were talking a little bit about before the show that's happened, been a big story in Metro Atlanta, and that's street racing. And I want to know if each of the mayors uh, has been dealing with that. And uh, if not, if they're worried that they might have to, and and really what they know about it. I'm going to start with Mayor Paul, because I know that um, uh, Sandy Springs just passed an ordinance, if I'm not mistaken. So um, let's talk street racing. Yeah, we uh, we passed an ordinance uh, Tuesday night that uh, that uh, cracks down on it. We had we thought we had the ordinances necessary to regulate this uh, and, and manage it, uh, but it turned out uh, as this phenomenon grew that we didn't. So we passed an ordinance that allows the police to impound the any vehicle that was involved in a street race, any a spectator who comes out and watches. We can impound those cars. I'm not sure we're going to park them all, but uh, we will we'll, we'll take control of the vehicles as a disincentive to, to come to Sandy Springs and do it. Other communities are doing the same thing. We had a group about 2 o'clock in the morning about three weeks ago take over a parking lot in one of our shopping centers, and it looked like the the old Daytona Beach race uh, as they were going around and around, uh, and there were over 100 spectators there. They uh, they use social media to identify where they're going to go, and our police officers were pretty good at monitoring that, and they would arrive before uh, the, the racers got there, and that would kind of disperse it. Now they've gotten a little bit more sophisticated in their communications, and it's a little bit harder to track. So we're having to do, use some more tools to try and manage it. But it's a growing phenomenon. It's a growing problem. It's a true public safety issue, uh, and it's something we've got to get on top of. Mayor Johnson, are you dealing with, has street racing come to Savannah? No, I'm not. Um, I'm not. We, we have not had that issue. Uh, we've been monitoring it um, because, you know, you know, Georgia, it kind of ebbs and flows, but we have not dealt with that. Our issue has really been we passed an ordinance last week to deal with um, people in the middle of streets um, getting hit by cars because they're panhandling and, and engaged with that type of, of, of behavior um, that's been quite dangerous. That's been our more pressing issue. So, so you've had a number a number of people hurt or or, or actually killed by yeah. by being hit by cars in the right. in intersect in the streets. Right. right, we've had four at least four people uh, killed. Um, essentially, what has occurred is, is that um, because of um, the pandemic, our our shelters run at about thirty percent capacity. So that means for every ten, there are seven people that are in the street. Um, there are people that come to Savannah because of weather, obviously, and so they're in the medians. Now, of course, they have an absolute right to be there, um, you know, as the Constitution allows. But on the other end of it, they, uh, you know, you come to a stoplight, they come out, they dart out in the middle of traffic, um, and then cars take off. You know, they're at the end of interstates and off of um, highways, and, you know, the drivers don't see them. They come out at night, no reflective clothing, and so we had to pass an ordinance to be able to give, 
the public safety, the authority, to be able to address that behavior because, again, it's dangerous not only for the pedestrian but also for the motorist. So, uh, Mayor Ingram, I don't know if street racing, uh, you're dealing with it uh, in East Point or not. You're welcome to comment on it if you, you, have, to, if you have dealt with it. But, but I also would pose for you a, a different question. I, I want to talk a little bit with all of you about your city's budgets, which first, I assume, were impacted by the recession, which is now almost 10 years, started more than 10 years ago. Uh, then coronavirus, COVID added to uh, problems there. And I'm wondering about your tax base. I'm wondering about how it's impacting the budgets for your cities and how that's affecting services. Uh, Mayor Ingram, you want to start with that? Or if you've got street racing, go ahead and talk about that. So I'll start with the street racing. It was absolutely an issue, especially being so close to Atlanta, right? So we have been dealing with it for months. And in January last last month, we actually had passed the street racing ordinance as well um, to deal with not only those who are engaged, but the spectators and pounding cars, because it creates a quality of life issue. You can imagine if you're home and at two o'clock in the morning, you start hearing engines, engines rearing and hundreds of cars going up and down the street. Um, we received a number of com- concerns and complaints from our residents regarding it. And so we passed the ordinance um, again, last month, and you know we will enforce that ordinance. It is critically important. Like Rusty said, they organized, and our, our police officers were tapped into those systems. But they're, you know, the innovation, the level of innovation that they have found to apply to street racing. I really wish they applied to something else more um, productive, and doesn't negatively impact the quality of life of our residents. Um, so yes, we've done that, and we are hopeful that that will help. Um, but it continues, it ebbs and flows, and it's moving all around the metro area. As it relates to our budget, um, so one of the areas that we have seen quite a bit of a drop, our property tax in, um, collection appears to be um, good, and it appears that we have collect are collecting um, at projected rate for property taxes from last year. Uh, we monitor it monthly. One of, one of our challenge our challenges are in our enterprise funds like water, electric sanitation. Um, We have our own power company and and we are seeing that there are a number of people who are not able to pay, again, their utilities. And so we are looking at those areas within our fund from a revenue perspective for those enterprise funds and and really are having to make tough decisions. We haven't disconnected in a while, but we're going to be resuming um, disconnections come March 1st. But we also have financial assistance that we're trying to connect people with to help them be able to pay um, their bills and, and, and get caught up and be able to ensure that they and their families stay housed. And so when we look at our budget, those are kind of the areas, and like I said, in our enterprise fund. Uh, Mayor Ingram, what percentage of your uh, property taxes uh, are collected from uh, 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 pr- homeowners as opposed to uh, businesses? So I would... I think it's around probably 70% of our property taxes come from residential versus businesses. Um, and again, the collections are well. We we don't have a lot of Class A office space. We don't have office space really in our city. So from the commercial perspective, a lot of it is re- um, restaurants, retail, and we have Camp Creek Marketplace, um, which is the highest performing tad in the state. And that has come back online, and there's activity there. So we are seeing that the, from a lo- local option sales tax perspective, 
the numbers are still kind of on point, but people are shifting what they're buying. So people are now buying, you know, things to do home repairs or, you know, make improvements and enhancement at their home or health and things like that. So it's just shifted to different type of purchasing, but the purchasing seems to be up. So, Mayor Paul, one of the reasons I asked that question of Mayor Ingram is I know you, on the other hand, are really struggling because of empty office space in Sandy Springs. Well, there's one thing that's clear. Our lives by this, through this pandemic have been changed forever in, in many ways. And we will not know for sure for maybe several years after this is uh, over with what the impact is. But one of the things that's clear is that the work-from-home phenomenon is probably here to stay. And that means a lot of the high-rise office buildings that is a, a major part of our tax base are empty. If you go to the King and Queen building right now, there are floors that the elevator won't stop because they're totally empty. And uh, the, the value of these uh, office towers is based on the rents that they get. And if they're not full, then the value comes down. So for cities like Sandy Springs, Dunwoody, Brookhaven, uh, the city of Atlanta, uh, all of these uh, jurisdictions that, re- that have huge uh, Class A office space, we're looking down the road. It's, it's going to take a while for it to sort out, but we're anticipating that we will lose significant uh, revenue over the long haul because of uh, businesses will not need all this uh, real estate that they've uh, normally acquired and used. And that's going to have real impact on a lot of local governments, particularly in the metro Atlanta area. You know, one of the questions I have for uh, for the mayors, too, is the impact in your cities on your your first responders. I mean, that is an, an essential city uh, function. And again, same sort of thing. I mean, in most small cities, uh, people know the 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 police officers and people who patrol their areas. So I guess I can start again with Mayor Johnson. I mean, what's that been like as the person ultimately responsible for uh, the work those folks do and the impact this is having on them uh, throughout the pandemic? Well, uh, thank you uh, for that question. Um, And and to go back to the the earlier point, I mean, our in Savannah, we're about 44% of property taxes. Savannah is really interesting because we, we have about 15 million visitors that come see us every year. Um, and so as a result, we rely heavily on um, sales tax and um, hotel motel taxes. Um, and that helps us to keep our um, budgets afloat. Now, the reality is throughout this pandemic, we have still needed police and we still needed fire. Um, we still needed those first responders to do, and I'm, I'm so proud of the Savannah Police Department and Savannah Fire Department for continuing to serve uh, during these very strange times. Um, you know, the fact is everybody else is running away from coronavirus. They have to come and serve. They have to put out a fire regardless of knowing the status of the people who are there saving. Or police on a traffic stop, you know, they have to serve regardless of knowing the status of the people that they are. So it's a matter of making sure that, A, um, that they're appreciated. Secondly, making sure that they're protected. Um, so we are uh, happy that I think most of our first responders have been uh, inoculated, um, and I think that's very, very important. Um, but then, again, making sure that they are um, well taken care of, making sure their families are well taken care of, and ensuring 
that they are, are well compensated for for the work that they're able to do, um, which of course puts burdens on on our on our city's budgets because in the end the money, there's less money coming in, but our obligations are still the same. And the other point I want to make is that. Um, in spite of all this is going on, people are still coming to Savannah. They're coming. I mean, our weather has been halfway decent, and people are coming still from all over the country. And that, you know, again, you know, we don't have an opportunity to stand down our police department or significant parts of it. The other strange challenge has been for us is that um, a lot of these officers, after getting the second shot of the, of the vaccines, have actually needed a day or two off, um, which has been an interesting challenge for us. Um, Mayor Ingram, weigh in on that, uh, if you would, in terms of uh, your first responders. So our first responders, I believe, have been doing a yeoman's task, but because they are out there every day of the of the week, of the year, um, 24-7, they have been exposed to the virus. We had some who tested positive um, for the virus, and that impacted, you know, the, the staffing. But they also have started being vaccinated. And so um, they are part of that group 1A and, and have been taking advantage of that, as well as assisting and doing all that we can to help, you know, the county with the district, um, excuse me, vaccinating those who are in group 1A. And so, you know, we have, are definitely appreciative of all of their service and them continuing to show up and protect and serve. But it, it is, you know, they are put in the line of, being in contact with people who are who have the virus they we make sure that they have ppe in their cars so they have masks and and things of that nature if they encounter people um they you know change their guidelines to, as well to be able to address that so that they are protecting and serving in the in the most safe manner for them as well as the public all right i've got to get to our final break of the show but uh kevin i'm glad you mentioned first responders uh especially police forces uh because when we come back i want to talk about racial justice and how things are developing in the three cities that uh, are represented on the show today. Uh, We'll do that after these messages. Joining us today, uh, Mayor Rusty Paul, Sandy Springs, Mayor Van Johnson, Savannah, Mayor Dina Holiday, Ingram, East Point, and Kevin Riley who's with us on Thursday, is editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mayor Paul, you last year responded to the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement as people began looking at racial justice, I think in an accelerated, uh, more heightened way, uh, recognizing in the aftermaths of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, that we really have a problem with how we deal with race and racial justice, uh, and to some extent how police deal with these issues, too. Uh, And you started a task force late last year looking at how you and Sandy Springs can do a better job uh, being a more equitable community, right? Yeah, when, uh, like a lot of communities, we had protests over the summer as a result of the incidents that you just outlined. And uh, I just walked out on the street and, and, and talked to them. They were ordinary people in, in the main who were very concerned and upset by the incidents that they had witnessed and had seen on television. And, uh, and, and that dialogue that I had out on the street with people uh, told me that we need to do, to, to do a better job. I've always believed that you can't solve problems unless you're willing to talk about them and talk about them honestly and truthfully. 
So we started a process. We had uh, we engaged civic dinners, and we had um, three over three hundred people participate in individual groups of ten uh, uh, max, and and engage in conversation. And I told council and myself, we're not going to get in there because our presence would tend, they want to ask us questions. It'll change the dynamic. We want to hear what the community's concerns are. And, and, and it was very clear that we had a group of people, uh, mostly of color, uh, African-American, Hispanic particularly, who loved living in Sandy Springs but didn't feel engaged, didn't feel wanted, didn't feel welcome. And that's something that when you talk about community, community comes from the root word of common if everybody, if all the common people there aren't together, you don't have community. So we've started a, a, a long dialogue. It's a journey. It's not a destination. We understand that. Uh, and I appointed another task force last week. We had those civic dinners. We took the, the notes and the transcripts, figured out what the, what the real underlying problems and concerns were, and now I've got a group of people headed by Jim Bostic. Jim is a former executive with uh, Georgia Pacific, I've got uh, members of the Hispanic community, members of the African-American community. It's a very broad-based group of people. And they are engaging in a dialogue with us at the city and the community at large to heighten awareness of the problem, help us generate solutions and ideas on how we can do a better job of making people who live in our community. It was, there was an interesting comment that came from one of the participants in our dinner. She said, what's the difference between diversity and inclusion? She said, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. So what we're trying to do is figure, figure out how we get more people dancing. And that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Kevin, one of the most pressing problems for every community across the state of Georgia right now. Yes? Yeah, I think that there's no community that uh, this, this issue doesn't come up. And it's really a question of uh, a community's willingness to uh, take it on. And um, so I would say uh, uh, we'll be certainly covering Mayor Paul's initiative in the AJC because I think uh, people are going to be very curious to see how it goes. Mayor Ingram and Mayor Johnson, I want to get Mayor Ingram, why don't you take a, a stab at this first and then Mayor Johnson? Yeah, so definitely we, we are committed to making equity and inclusion more than a cliche in our city. And so, you know, in, in light of the world crying out for dismantling systemic racism and systemic inequities, we started the Bridging the Race Gap, a multicultural shared understanding of racism in America and our path forward. So it's a community conversation. And we've had those monthly, we had a monthly in the fall and really creating the space for people who wanted to have that conversation around what does it look like? What is East Point's history? Like, what does that mean for us? And, and while we are a majority, um, a city of majority people of color, you know, redlining, I believe, in Georgia probably started in East Point because in night, July 15, 1912, the East Point City Council passed the ordinance unanimously requiring all black people in the city to live near fertilizer plants and chemical plants and oil plants in the city, this 45 acre area. And in 1913, Atlanta passed theirs and then the Georgia constitution was amended in 1928. So understanding that we, we um, have started also engaged partnership for Southern equity to help us create an equitable growth and inclusion plan where we look at equitable industrial land use, right? How do you, industrial land use and the, the toxins and pollutions from that 
have really impacted the quality of life of our residents. And we passed some sweeping legislation on December 29th to address that to be more equitable in our land use. We're looking at inclusionary housing as well as economic mobility and opportunity. Mayor Johnson, Mayor Ingram uh, really lays out how complex this entire uh, effort can uh, be. It, it's not a simple and straightforward uh, issue to deal with. No, I think the cities across the nation uh, understood the very unique time that we were in uh, last year. I certainly will remember May 31st when thousands of people converged on the Savannah City Hall. Um, and for us, it was a moment for us to to act, um, to make it more than just a, a moment but a movement. Um, I created what was called the um, Savannah Cares Task Force, which stands for Citizen Accountability and the Review of Emergency Services, which was based off of uh, former President Obama's um, uh, uh, My Brother's Keeper initiative, in which we did a couple of things. We reviewed uh, our existing use of force policies. Um, we engaged the public. We reported our findings, and then we instituted reform. Um, we thought initially it was going to be a 90-day process. This group is still meeting. Um, they have issued, to this point, uh, 12 interim recommendations, um, with 10 of which have been accepted and implemented now by the police department. Um, they've been out in the community in this COVID environment talking to people about their experiences, and they're working on their final report. Um, the other task force is called Real Savannah, and, you know, it's, it's beyond policing. I mean, Savannah has been around now 288 years. Um, we recognize that Savannah has now always been fair to all of its residents. So Real Savannah deals with racial equity and, and leadership, and this is an opportunity for us to look at um, diversity and inclusion all the way around the spectrum. Um, let's, let's document disparities. And then let's come up with an action plan to be able to work with that. That means we have to have some so, conversations. So a quick, quick go round because we're running short on time. Mayor Johnson, how hopeful are you about uh, moving into a, a period of time when Savannah, the country, will understand uh, racial inclusiveness and uh, dealing with uh, ending systemic racism? Are you hopeful? I am faithful. I, I exist because of faith. I, I recognize very clearly. <laughs> that when a, a young man from a housing projects in Savannah can go and become a United States senator, anything is possible. <laughs> Raphael Warnock, of course. Uh, Mayor Ingram, are you hopeful? I'm hopeful, but I'm, uh, faith without works is dead, right? And so while we would love to see a country that way, my goal and focus is really East Point, which, which is within our locus of control. What can we do every day um, to make sure that we are equity and inclusion is more than a cliche? in our city and that we are taking action within our city locally. Mayor Paul, quick comment. I'm very hopeful. You know my background. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1960s. Uh, the civil rights era there was not history for me. It was my daily life. And I see how far we have come in those 60 years of my life, and I'm hopeful that we'll continue it. But I'm also aware that there is no final destination. we got to work on it every day. Kevin Riley, I think the show proves why it's so interesting to talk to mayors and hear what's going on in local communities around our state. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, really quickly, I have a brother in Ohio who is a two-term mayor. I have a brother in Ohio who's an attorney <laughs> for a, a mayor in a suburb. And what yeah, I can well, tell you is people who do this work care deeply and active, thoughtful mayors 
can really have an impact. And so it was an honor to get a chance to talk to these three folks today. That is, I could not have summed up this show better. Uh, thank you, Kevin Riley. Um, thank you, Mayor Van Johnson, Mayor Rusty Paul, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, for a terrific conversation today. We're out of time for today's show. Again, tomorrow, Gerald Walker, uh, How to Make a Slave, a provocative and fascinating conversation. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and in fact, start wearing two. I'll see you all again tomorrow.